All right, Austin, so where do you fall on nostalgia? I'm down with a little bit of nostalgia every now and then. This week, we're talking about two films that were significant to us in celebration of our 50th episode, The Searchers and Top Gun. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Hey, welcome to I Dig This Movie. I'm Kier Seward, an independent filmmaker and photographer, as well as a guy who has a working microphone, unlike some people. Oh, with the digs already, huh, motherfucker? And I'm Austin Hayden-Smith, and my microphone might be cutting in and out, but I will say this. I just read a news article about a carry man who found a giant squid, and all I can think about now is Calafuckin'Mari. Can you imagine how big the calamari would be from a giant squid? Be like that would be a- like... That'd be like the most exciting thing to Alex ever. <laughs> like, she would just hear that and her, like, she'd just say her mouth would start watering and she'd be like, boom, I want a piece of that. Yeah. Um, so this week we are breaking from our usual format because it's 50 episodes and we put stock in milestones of 10 um, yeah. and fives. So arbitrarily we've decided this is a significant point. So there you go. Cool. So this week we will be talking about our two. Well, I I guess nostalgia, but I kind of like the way we framed it was significant films in our lives. So yeah. uh, I went with The Searchers, and Austin went with Top Gun. So we pretty much could not have gone for more two different things in terms of tone. I suppose there's a there's a through line of masculinity I was going just within that. it. Yeah. So I suppose yeah, there's there's definitely something about that. Uh, but <laughs> we we'll find out if maybe Top Gun is the reason you are the way you are, maybe Searchers is the way I am, <laughs> the way I am. However, I've decided because, you know, because fuck it, I'm just going to decide it. I've decided we're going to start with Top Gun and then go to the Searchers. I want to serve my country, be the best fighter pilot in Navy, sir. You want to know who the best is? That's him, Iceman. That's the way he flies, ice cold, no mistakes. You need to be doing it better and cleaner than the other guys. I'm Maverick. Maverick? Does your mother not like you or something? I got to do something here. I, I, I still can't believe it. I got to give you your dream shot. You two characters are going to top gun. <laughs> You are the top 1% of all naval aviators. The elite. We'll make it better. You figured it out yet? What's that? Who's the best pilot? I'm an instructor at this school. I see 20 new hot shots every eight weeks. Every time you go up in the air, you're unsafe. That's right. I am dangerous. Not your flying. Attitude. Yeah, I guess when I see something, I go right after it. It takes a lot more than just fancy flying. I got a family to think about. I can't afford to blow this. You're the only family I've got. I'm not going to let you down. Gentlemen, this school is about combat. Ten more seconds, then I've got him. There are no points for second place. What you do up there is dangerous. Got to go on. Uh, Top Gun is the story of a naval aviator whose call sign is Maverick. Who is he a bit of a maverick? He's a bit of a maverick who falls into a slot to go and participate at the most prestigious flyboy school 
in Miramar, which is in San Diego, California, called Top Gun. And it's a competition where the best pilots compete over a source of exercises, and the winner gets this prestigious award and becomes kind of like the, the head of the class, and then gets invited to be a Top Gun instructor, blah, blah, blah. And then, of course, there's this battle of him kind of being a bit of a rebel, and he has to kind of learn to trust other people, and then he loses one of his partners, or actually his partner, um, his cockpit man by the name of Goose, who dies. And so then he has to overcome that and kind of find his strength within, and then also trust other people, and he becomes friends with Tom Kazansky. Or is, is he Tom Kazansky, or is... Uh, is uh is Iceman Tom Kazansky? I can't remember, but Iceman, and so that's his rivalry. And then uh, he works in the end to kind of overcome his egoism and to serve as a quote unquote wingman as he gets called into some random conflict with the Russians in the Indian Ocean. That is a made up conflict that is just there to kind of like raise the stakes of uh, intensity and drama. And of course, yeah. yeah spoiler alert: this movie ends with them starting World War Three. <laughs> yeah, and of course, he saves the day because he learns to be a wingman, but also a leader at the same time. See, he does both. So he's arrogant and he's a punk, but at the same time, he also can work as a team. And then the electric guitars break in and it's... Greatest soundtrack. That song still brings a tear to my eye. It was one of the first songs that I requested from my guitar teacher that I learn on the guitar. So so, so here's... Here's here's the interesting thing I thought of when I was watching this film. And I haven't seen Top Gun in about... I think it was like, I think it's probably about five or six years. Probably the last time okay. I saw Top Gun was when my mother strangely just really decided one time that she really wanted to see Top Gun because she'd never seen it before. Right. Um, but like, I had a housemate um, back when I was 18. I moved out and was living in a flat with this other dude. And we actually watched Top Gun a surprising amount of times. <laughs> um, and we basically had like, you basically just quote Top Gun to each other yes. a lot. It was that and Euro Trip. Those were <laughs> randomly the two oh movies God. that we quoted to each other a lot. So my, my, th- it was, it was, cause Top Gun's one of those, those films too that I think how you view it slightly does change a little bit depending on your your age and your stake in life and things like that and how you do and it's because here's the thing that i thought was was fascinating watching it this time top gun almost has no plot to it like whatsoever (laughs) it is almost bereft of any real plot and it's like it's got the semblances and the vague notions of a plot but it is aesthetically amazing at all times like everything just looks (laughs) awesome everything just looks cool as fuck and it's like it's like it's it's like little things that really struck me this time like they are having a class in an airplane hangar at one point why the fuck are they having a class in an airplane hangar they wouldn't be able to hear anything but it's because it looks fucking cool and i so it was and i've said this to a couple of people since i watched it that i think top gun elevates the aesthetics of coolness to an art form it's Mm. like it's because it's it's because also those aerial combat scenes are oh, kind dude. of amazing they and they're amazing. amazing because they are literally people filming these fucking big ass cool ass planes on you know you know up there in the sky and it yeah. and it's like and the rock music kicks in and it's just fucking awesome. Yeah, well, and everything about it. I mean, aviator glasses, the bomber jackets. Uh, you know, even even going to the clubs. It is very. It's highly stylized, but in a way that isn't like fucking refin or something like that, where it's uh, it, it's like maybe oversaturated with a certain intentional style. But it's just a sort of very simple kind of dude aesthetic. 
There is not you a know? hint of irony in this film. Like no, it's no, like exactly. they are they are playing this completely yeah. straight at all times. <laughs> and this is and and so it's those points where they're like they're doing things where you're kind of like how did you not laugh while you like that that scene the scene where 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 Val Kilmer's like you know what you're dangerous every time you go up you're unsafe and then I he don't goes like that's right I like that's man. right I, I am dangerous, ice man, and then he chomps his teeth at him. So, talk a little bit about the sort of homoerotic under undertoning. But this is this is the thing that I mean, though. It's because it's the aesthetic. It's at all times Tony Scott just cares about the aesthetic. So right. it's like, so like for instance, there's no thought of the fact that like you have like a bunch of shirtless dudes playing volleyball and kind of lovingly shown in slow motion while i mean it's funny too because if you watch it like there's no women there it's just dudes watching them as well so it's just it's like this huge <laughs> thing of just shirtless men and it's and it's and it's because tony scott is like he likes the yeah. he's he's he likes the aesthetic of these kind of powerful buff dudes looking like cool and shit like that and the problem yeah. is if you if you have no female element to that it's hard for that not to come off as very homoerotic and kind of gay or what if it comes across as him trying to titillate a female audience or a female and male audience like he's just trying, to titillate. This... He's just trying to titillate the audience of all sexual preferences well and i think there is definitely an element to which you know these guys seem to be sort of styled up for hyper in a sort of hyper sexualized way like it's like yeah. there's actually no locker room at Miramar, like, because, like, guys, like, live in the area, so they, they come to work dressed up, like, dressed in their flight cl- suits, or, you know, they change in the car or something like that. They don't, like, there's not, like, a point where all the guys sit around in a locker room, uh, oiled up, and, um, you know, sort of, like, in towels, and have, like, heart-to-heart discussions with each other. They chat but about I- their day. But that's actually the other thing. I mean, actually, it's not fair to say oiled up, but everyone is sweaty. This film yeah. is like almost everyone is sweating all the time in this film. So everyone sort of is glowing, <laughs> with, glistening with sweat at all times. Um, and it's hey, like, man, it's, it's hot in Southern California, okay? It, it is, but it's like, but again, it adds this kind of element to the homoeroticism of it where they're all kind of like shiny and, and you know, kind mm-hmm. of like, yeah, and they're, they're glistening men, you know? Um but no, and I and I think I think actually I, I think I don't think there's any intentionality behind it, and I think part of it is because Tony Scott is someone who comes from a commercial background. He is so in commercials, you are prioritizing the aesthetic most of the time because the aesthetic mm-hmm. is what is selling the thing. So it's almost like, and you can see why people say that this is like a, a, essentially a commercial for the military because it makes mm. everything look really, really fucking cool. Yeah. And so that's it. Everything is dialed up for for top level aesthetic. So when he's dealing with the men, he's sort of making them look as cool and sexy as possible and i don't think it's because they're sitting there thinking like we need to service a gay audience or female audience i think it's just that commercial instinct of saying we need to make everything look as as good and um aesthetically pleasing as possible yeah and i also think that even to try to categorize you know um titillating physical 
attributes as being either homo or heterosexual is already playing into the, the wrong hands of the game. It's just simply titillating. It's interesting, like you said, because of that aesthetic appeal. Were you, were you so, turned on a little bit by the volleyball game? Is that what you're telling me, Austin? Brother, I, I Slider, come on, man. Look, you, he's, he's, he's manly. But by you the know? way, too. By the way, I don't. I love the. I love the Tom Cruise watch flex when he's like he like he's check because he checks his watch several times. He's got to flex his arm while he's checking his watch. Yeah, and he's got to like like do the little chest flex too, so his yeah, boob yeah. kind of rises a little bit. But yeah, I mean, I don't. I mean, have don't a you feel a little bit sorry for Goose too? Who's got like he's he's clearly a little bit bashful. He's got like the shirtless tee on, the sleeveless tee on, and he's like yeah, he doesn't have the body as the other guys. Do, yeah, exactly. You know? And I kind of like um, we used to have like. Uh, when I was in Australia, we used to have a slang for guys who didn't take their shirt off on the beach, and we called them. They, they, we said they were goosing it. Yeah, I mean, it does fit. I mean, I think it also fits within his character too. He isn't the kind of outlandish ladies' man who's trying to show off his body. Where clearly the other dudes are absolutely. Goose is more of a family guy. You know, he loves his wife, yeah. played by Meg Ryan. Um, and uh, and so it does kind of seem to make more sense. He's a little bit more reserved. And, so and, and I bet fits. you all of those guys were doing, like, getting a pump on just off camera before each shot as well. Oh, oh Muscle Beach, brother. You know, yeah, for sure exactly. they had, like, a full weight set there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, 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 and I don't have a problem with it. I do think that there are certain uh, homosexual resonances that, that – uh, kind of project from the film in itself. But I think you're going to get that with any sort of masculine film where men well, there's are... there's an element of male posturing, are... too, which is homoerotic. So it's like exactly. when... So it's it's because it has that that now infamy with it. I don't know if you call it infamy or whatever, but it has... Yeah. It means that when you're watching it, you're so hyper-aware of it. So, like, the bit mm. where he goes, he goes like... He, he, where he says to the one of the guys and who's like watching, he's like, yeah, he's like, oh, this is turning me on. The other guy's like, oh, don't tease me, you know? Yeah, yeah, or yeah. like when Tom Cruise is like, Tom Cruise is sitting there and then like Iceman is just staring at him and then they stare back at each other. And you can't like, you could so just see yourself, you could so easily make like a shipping video, which is just like literally like Iceman and, and, uh, and Mavericks like loving, longing stares at each other. Yeah. And, and not only that, but I think this actually, it, it kind of fits within any sort of male dominant environment there is libidinal energy that needs to be released here's the other thing though one of the other like details that i loved was okay so you know tom cruise goes over to kelly mcgillis's house she wants to hear about the mig and he kind of ends up having like a talk about his dad while listening to on the dock of the bay Otis and Redding, yeah. uh, and then you know clearly like kelly mcgillis is like you know I'd be down for some D like right now. And Tom Cruise is like, nah, I'm going to leave. So it just goes, it just leaves, <laughs> just leaves. And then literally next shot elevator door. Cause he's like, I got to go take a shower. And so like the elevator doors open up back at like Miramar and she's like standing there and she's dressed like a man. <laughs> Right. And it's like, she's got like the cap on and the big jacket. And like, <laughs> on a production level, there's a reason for that. Because, right, right. Um, because apparently, uh, what happened was that Tony, that's uh, so Jerry Brockheimer and Don Simpson, uh, the, the famous slash infamous producers of Top Gun, um, mm. they looked at, uh, they looked at the, the, like the, um, the first assembly cuts of it and they were like, Fuck! This film has like no story, like nothing, like like there's no through line, there's nothing. So they did a whole bunch of reshoots, and the reshoots of the elevator were done six months later when Kelly McGillis had completely different hair and Tom Cruise's hair had been grown out for uh, the color of money. So if you look at it, you can see they've sort of wetted Tom Cruise's hair down. They've tried to hide the fact that his hair is longer, but Ke that's why Kelly McGillis's hair is under a hat because I'm pretty sure it was even a different color. So yeah. it's like, but it's really hard. 
now with the whole sort of underline of sort of, you know, homoeroticism, not to see that see it a big kind of like, is she trying to like attract Tom Cruise by dressing more as a man? (laughs) Yeah, especially because so he's playing volleyball. He leaves volleyball with all of these dudes to go uh, meet up with Killy McGillis. Then he doesn't bang her. And then the next scene is her uh, wearing the ball cap. And you're like, wait a second here. This is a strange sequence of events. By the way, is, do you think this is the genesis of the Tom Cruise rides a motorcycle thing? Because I, I feel like feel like this is the first time he rides a motorcycle and then he continues to ride motorcycles through like the rest of his career. You know, the only thing he doesn't do in Top Gun is he doesn't have one of those long running sequences. Yeah, he doesn't you know? run. Yeah, yeah, yeah but, I but, missed that. This is uh, definitely did, the genesis of Tom Cruise on a motorcycle. Yeah. But, but anyway, okay, so he rides off in his motorcycle. He's not paying attention. She goes through traffic. And then and, and he's like, how, how could you say that I'm, how, what, you call me dangerous? Because she's like told him off and been like, Tom Cruise, you're like, you're, you know, he, some semblance of you're dangerous, but it's like in a different way where it's more like military strategy base and then and he goes well she says they're they're in they're in a a trailer and they're looking at a maneuver that he made where he hit the brakes which he ends up using at the end to save the day right but where he hits the brakes and he goes up over the mig behind him and like as he says i'm gonna hit the brakes and he'll fly right by so he hits the brakes and then uh they're analyzing this in this tent or in this trailer and she says oh he makes an aggressive move and he comes over and defeats the bandit with a missile shot but uh it was too aggressive blah 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 blah. and so that's what it is so she basically in front of all the rest of the flight school guys kind of said he was too aggressive and so he takes that as like an attack on the way that he flies so he's in a mood he's in a mood because tom cruise sulks quite a bit in this film as well (laughs) Uh, so he so so basically she like she 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 basically runs him down with her car and uh and he's like you call me dangerous blah 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 blah. and she's like she's like you think i could i could tell them they could say in that room there that uh that that i see some some great talent in your flying or something like that. And then right. and she's like, but I can't let anyone see that I'm falling for you. And but she does it in this weird yeah. dead eyed way when you're kind of like, Kelly McGinnis, did you just really hate Tom Cruise? Because you really look like you don't want to say this. And which then leads to one of the most awkward sex scenes ever filmed in the, in the history awkward. of cinema. Awkward. That is awkward. That sex scene is awkward as fuck, man. That's just because you don't appreciate sensuality. Man, that's a beautiful sex scene. The blue curtains and the shadowy lighting you, and the like, tongues. You, you, the tongues that oh, just kind of like... That, it's tongue. the tongues that are where it becomes super <laughs> weird. I remember when I was a little boy, my dad used to cover my eyes during that He's scene. Like, you're, like, you're, like, you're like, yeah, that's sex, man. That's, that's, yeah, what, that, that's what happens. You, you know gotta, what? Women uh, out there that have encountered me in a sexual capacity, <laughs> I'm sorry. That is where I learned my moves. You're, you're like, you're like, I'm sorry. I got to put on these blue lights. Uh, we got to get some, <laughs> got to get some heavy backlight going. Hey, hold on, more tongue. I, more no, no, tongue. Out, out, outside of your mouth. Just I'm no, gonna no. lick it. Yeah, yeah. Just, yeah, yeah. just, just, just a lot of licking. That's what. Let's I, just, that's what. Let's just. Liz- it's called the lizard tongue. Let's just put our tongues together. Um, no. Oh, and it's oh, got oh, do you know, do you know, But here's probably here's the, the most famous, the most famous like sex scene song. Uh, ever take my breath away it's a great song by berlin come on the idea of this episode is it's films that were personally significant to us so explain (laughs) a little bit why top gun is significant to you yeah so my grandfather was a fighter pilot he was actually the youngest person in the state of washington to get his pilot's license when he was 16 years old he got a plane before he got a car and uh my father would he or my grandfather flew in the korean war and uh, he flew, I think it was F-8s and A-4s, and um, he was a bit of a hot shot himself. Now, he flew in the Marines. Was he a bit of a maverick? 
uh, he probably he was he's a womanizer drinker smoker you know a bit of a party boy um so when i was younger though my grandpa was like a god to me you know he he was amazing as as happens with sort of father and grandfather figures in in our lives when we're young boys and not only that but my grandfather was stationed at miramar for a long time and he worked with the blue angels uh and he was a flight instructor and stuff like that and he actually worked as a consultant on top gun the scene when uh when when Kelly McGillis first meets Tom Cruise and she says she's meeting up with a friend, that much older gentleman, the guy named Perry, that was my grandpa's best friend or one of his best friends at Miramar who was actually a flight instructor, the guy Perry was. Um, so for me growing up, Top Gun to me was a movie that like my grandfather introduced me to and I thought that being a fighter pilot was kind of like the pinnacle of what it meant to be an adult or to be a man, to be a human. So for me, that's kind of why Top Gun had such a profound structural impact because it sort of served as a foundation to how I kind of viewed what it meant to be a young boy trying to follow in my grandpa's footsteps. And I used to go to flight simulators and stuff like that at the El Toro Marine Base in Orange County, which is no longer there. But I used to go into flight simulators with uh, um, like the proper the proper flight simulators, not like going to like fighter town and shit like that, which is kind of just for commercial purposes, but like actually on the military base. And, and I wanted to be a fighter pilot for the longest time. And then I actually even took the ASVAB, which is a, a test where you take for like military scoring after you get out of high school. And I scored like very high on the ASVAB. And so I, I got offers to potentially maybe go into uh, the Air Force and whatnot and go into like intelligence and shit like that. So I was like, I was really into it for a little bit. Um, and then it just, it, it was never really my passion. I was also in a rock band and I wasn't doing acting and I was like, I'm going to be famous rather than go into the military and potentially risk my life and die for something that I don't even really know I believe in. I just wanted to be like a flyboy. So for me, that's really why Top Gun had such a profound impact on me. And because Basically, of that, you just I, wanted to wear the whites. That's what you wanted. Well, actually, so no, Air Force, you wouldn't have, Air Force, you wouldn't have had whites. I wouldn't would have worn the whites. No, no but no, no. Well, when I was younger, younger, I did want to be a naval aviator because of Top Gun. But my grandpa told me that I, that I shouldn't do that because of the danger of flying on an aircraft carrier. And he was like, so you should consider going to the Air Force and, uh, and because of other reasons. So I remember that as – I remember having a conversation with him out in front of my dad's house. The garage was open and we were standing there and I told him I wanted to be a pilot. And he said, you should go into the Air Force. You should really consider it. And I was like 10, you know? <laughs> so um, – but yeah. So that's really why it has such a profound hold on me was because of that connection with my grandpa and then my father. And I used to watch that movie all the time, you know, when I was a little boy. And before my father converted to Christianity – um, and became sort of more, I guess, uh, he, he tried to filter these types of films with this type of content. Um, we used to watch that movie all the time because, again, my father admired his father as well. So there was this, there was this family lineage that really kind of deeply rooted us into this film. So, yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting, too, though, because, I mean, essentially this film came about um, because uh, the there was an article in a 1983 issue of California that was essentially about Miramar. And uh, mm. the producers were like, oh, that sounds like an interesting thing to make a film about. <laughs> right. And I'm not sure at any point did they ever really figure what that film would be. It's just that <laughs> they had a vague idea Fighter pilots are cool. Here's yeah. this place where there's a bunch of fighter pilots. That film will happen if we just set it there. Yeah. And but at, at the same time, I find it fascinating because I I don't think this film in any way reflects what Miramar is. 
Because it's even like things like they don't even have like a trophy or anything like that. It's not like that's like a real thing, apparently, that there's even like a Top Gun trophy. Mm. Um, And like like things like, for instance, how like the locker rooms, things that just don't really actually like happen in real life. They do have Top Gun hats. Austin has just gone off to put on a Top Gun hat. I'm afraid I don't have a hat that says the searchers on it. So, you know, we, we, we can't go like for like on this. I think what I can't remember. I think it, I can't remember if it was Brockheimer or, or um, Scott or who said it. But um, essentially they said this was not a military movie. This was a sports movie. Like and that's kind right. of very much the thing. It's like, you know, uh, you have the kind of underdog character who rises to the top and wins the big game at the end. And that's essentially what yeah. the plot line of this film is. Yeah, because so basically the idea is, is that uh, it's said by and I can't remember what's the bald dude's name. The actor Michael Ironside. No, no, uh, the guy at the oh, beginning. Oh, oh, yeah. Um, that's in he, top, the guy, that's in Back to the Future. Yeah, the yeah, principal, the, uh, the the principal guy. Yeah, I just yeah. think of him as the principal from Back the to the Future. The principal from Back to the Future, yeah. Um, he basically says at one point to Maverick before he sends him on to Top Gun, to, or before, yeah, before he sends Maverick to Top Gun, Maverick's been a bit of a troublemaker, right? And we know why. There's a little bit of a backstory. His father was a pilot, and his father gets killed under mysterious conditions, and all the information's classified. So he's got a chip on his shoulder. He's got daddy issues. And so he's a bit of a, a wait, loose wait, wait, cannon. wait, wait, wait! A hero with daddy issues? <laughs> yeah, I know. That's Very shocking. Original. So you know he's he's got the the weakness and the need of all great stories. But uh, at one point, the the guy that runs the aircraft carrier that Tom Cruise is stationed on says, you know, you're a hell of an instinctive pilot, maybe too good. So you know that there's skill. He's amazing. He's just raw. And so the guy that he originally wants to send is this guy Cougar, but who's Cougar... played by who, who, weird fact is played by John Stockwell, who later went on to make lots of movies in water. So he directed Into the Blue and Blue Crush. And <laughs> yeah. so he's, he's, he's sort of like he's like Hollywood's water guy. If you need a movie that's set in water, then he'll he'll make that. And not only that, but uh, Cougar's Rio is uh, Tim Robbins. Yeah, uh, who then comes back later. Merlin. Yeah, yeah. whose who's call sign is Merlin. But yeah, and so- is and is hilarious because also they bring he, he he's sort of Tom Cruise's co-pilot at guy at the end who right. uh, who I'd, I think like you couldn't come up with two actors of different height differences more than <laughs> Tim Robbins and Tom Cruise. And also I love the fact how much this move how much time this movie spends trying to not trying to stop you from realizing that Kelly McGillis is taller than Tom Cruise. Yeah, I heard that like they had to like stand him on like apple boxes and lifts and all kinds yeah. of stuff like that constantly throughout. But but so the idea is, is that Cougar's the better pilot at the very beginning, but Cougar freaks out when uh, there's any sign of genuine conflict. A MiG comes into airspace and he's meant to go out there and kind of scramble him and, and see what's going on, not to engage, but to figure out what's going on. And he kind of freaks out, right, because he thinks about his wife and kids. So he doesn't have the instincts. He might be a better trained pilot, but he doesn't have the killer instinct, whereas Maverick does. So that's Maverick's going to go Maverick- vertical and give. The, give them the fucking finger because that's, <laughs> that's how right. much of a badass he okay, is. Okay, I, I got to tell you this story. So when I was a little boy, this shows you how much of an impact Tom Top Gun had on me. When I was a little boy, I went to a private Baptist school in Orange County that was called Liberty Baptist. So I was in, uh, you know, kindergarten, first, second grade. My best friend at the time was a guy named Francois. And Francois and I loved Top Gun. And we didn't really understand what the middle finger meant, you know, when we were in fucking kindergarten or first grade. But we both love Top Gun, and we remember that when he goes inverted over the MIG, that Tom Cruise, Maverick, flips off the other guy. And we thought that was really funny. So our symbol to each other in class at a 
private liberty or at a private Baptist school was to flip each other off. So we would sit there and just give each other the middle finger. And then finally, my teacher caught on and was like, what are you doing? And sent us to the principal's office. And yeah, so this this shows you my first time getting sent to the principal's office was because of Top Gun. I mean, it goes deep, brother. This goes deep into the core of, like, the, the construction of my psyche. I've got, the like, daddy and grandpa issues. I've got, like, me getting in trouble for the first time because I was trying to emulate some heroes that I saw on, on screen. Fuck, man. Top Gun, if we could go to, like, a psychoanalyst, I bet you my attachment and relations to Top Gun probably have, like, serious constitutive effects. Did you, did you, anytime you saw a woman in a bar, did you try and, did you go, bro. she's lost that love and feeling? Bro, when I was in high school, my buddies and I used to do that all the time. <laughs> we used to go up to, like, random girls and start singing it. It was amazing. <laughs> okay, so here's, here's, here's an interesting question. Okay, so okay. As, as, as a lefty, yeah. I'm curious to know what is your feeling about the uh, the sort of the crass uh, advertising of the of the military industrial complex in this. Oh, I blocked that out, and I just watched the movie. No, it's, <laughs> yeah, you have. I have. But you to can block see why people would suddenly be like, "Oh, fuck yeah, I want to be a fucking Navy pilot now." Dude, I did. Yeah, I exactly. To be a Navy pilot. I still. I still, like, I can remember going to, and I'm sure you've been to live sporting events in America when a fucking fighter jet flies over and the hair on your arms stands up and you get chills from just that power. And, and I, I still admire pilots. Like, if I meet someone who's like, oh, I'm a pilot and I fly F-8s or A-4s or whatever the fuck they fly now, or F-16s, because they don't fly F-14s anymore, but, uh, you know, they fly like F-16 Hornets or something like that, I'm going to be like, you fly fucking off of an aircraft carrier like i want to know you even though you are obviously a handmaiden for the military industrial complex and you're engaged in wars that i'm not going to to ultimately be in agreement with i'm still gonna fucking be like you fly those fucking things oh that's that's funny because like i have a very different thing which is like because i'm you know a filmmaker and i'm generally around creatives it's like if i meet someone at a party and they're like um oh i'm a lawyer i'm like oh fuck you've got like you got like a real job you're like <laughs> You're like a proper person. <laughs> yeah, I get um, that too. I do that too. But, but, but no, but it's, yeah, it's, I, it's, I mean, I still like I was at the airport. Uh, I, I don't remember when I was just a couple of within the last couple months and uh, maybe a month and a half. Uh, and I was with my girl and I actually paused for a second when we were on the runway and we were next to these big jets. And I said to her just I was like, I still marvel at the engineering and power of these things. And to me, that's what what gets me more than anything. It isn't. I don't see Top Gun, even though it is, I don't see it, and maybe this is the seductiveness of it, I don't see it as serving a sort of uh, imperialist or, or uh, military power. I see it as being to uh, boys with their toys. And so I see my grandpa, who was a commercial airline pilot after he retired, obviously, from the military, and then he was a commercial airline pilot for a long time. So I see engineering, and I see uh, human innovation, and I see technology, and I see boys playing with their toys. And to me, as a boy who loved to play with toys when he was younger and loved the idea of flying, that's really what gets me more than anything. And that's probably why it's so fucking seductive. But here's, here's the thing that's interesting. Okay, so you take you, you, you take that, right? Okay. Um, and But, like, what I think informs some of this in, an, in a really interesting way is the fact that the military basically bent over backwards for the production and just said, this yeah. is clearly worthwhile to us. What can we do to help you make this film? And because mm -hmm. it is like, you cannot make a film like this without a huge amount of military cooperation. Now, in theory, 
um, the way you would probably make it now is with lots of CGI, which kind of defeats the purpose. And one of the really cool things, one of the things that I enjoyed so much about this was just thinking about how much fucking work went into making these flying scenes. And I thought they right. were like, and, and again, it's like you can't take away some of the brilliant artistry of that. But mm. the thing at the same time is clearly the military who has they they've looked at the script. They have, you know, and and that's the thing. If you're going to make a film with this sort of level of military cooperation, the military is going to have veto power at any point. And mm. they've clearly looked at this and said, this is all worthwhile to us <laughs> as a selling point for the military. So, I mean, there's an element of that which is somewhat concerning. Because, I mean, the other thing, too, is, like, do you know that, like, basically they didn't have to rent the planes at all? The military essentially said, as long as you pay for the jet fuel and yeah. you and you're doing it at times when we um, when we don't need the planes for other things, you can basically you can you you're you're totally free to use use these planes. Um, and, and there's an element of that, which is somewhat concerning in the fact that the military seems so gung ho about being like, yeah, just go fucking film a giant multi-million dollar commercial for us Hmm. to try and drive up, uh, to try and drive up, uh, recruitment. Sure. I mean, that, that is insidious as fuck. And the fact that it worked demonstrates that they were using the power of neuromarketing to kind of stimulate and nudge people psychologically in a direction that they had kind of anticipated. And and I think what they're ultimately capitalizing on is that power, right? I, when I say boys with their toys, it's power and freedom. And I think that's what's so interesting about the Tom Cruise on the motorcycle scene. When he's flying, he's got no helmet on, he's just got his bomber jacket on, and he's just flying down the road next to the jet as the jet's taken off, and he's like pumping his fist in the air. There's there's uh, like power, there's freedom, there's exuberance, there's like that libidinal orgasmic joy. Uh, all of that is taking place. And then, of course, that's not even talking about the actual getting in the cockpit and flying this multi-million dollar machine in the air that again is another sort of expression of a radical type of freedom and power as refracted through masculinity in this male culture of the military that appeals to I think so many young men and appeals to so many men. I mean I I wonder, not even the measurable facts of recruits that signed up for the military, but how many people like myself as a young boy were psychologically conditioned in such over-deterministic ways to be favorable to uh, military flying and military history and to the sort of technologies that the military will develop just because of the fucking film and the influence of Top Gun. I bet you it's vast. Well, it's interesting because I was not one of those kids. Like I, I, as a kid, never cared about cars. I was never interested in planes. I was never, I like dinosaurs, but I wasn't like, I was never into like planes or shit like that. Mm. You know, that was like, I went to, that was kind of more what I gravitated towards. I think I gravitated more towards like nerd shit rather than well, did, like. Did Jurassic like, Park like rock your fucking oh world? Oh my God. What? Jurassic Park is like, <laughs> Jurassic Park would have been the other option of what we could have done. Like okay. if there is, I mean, cause Jurassic Park, cause I went, I picked something which was more like an awakening film for me. But right. like if we went for like childhood obsession, then Jurassic Park would have been that. Cause so, I watched. So, yeah. Jurassic yeah. Park would be your top gun. Jurassic Park would really be what my top is. So Searchers okay. kind of occupies a different kind of position for me than mm. what I think Top Gun occupies for you. And the equivalent of Top Gun would have been Jurassic Park because I was fucking obsessed with that. My, my mom can tell you I watched that movie 
so much. Like it's even it's even funny. Like I could I can watch that movie now and still pretty much remember word for word all the dialogue. Um, you know, so I mean, it's it's and it's it's that kind of thing where it's like you you see something that you just think is so amazing and you just kind of like and you become kind of obsessed with it. Um, but like, and I think, but I think the funny thing was rather than go into say like it made me want to study dinosaurs, it I think it just made it made me want to it made me love film in a you know in a in a different kind of a way. But um, but here's here's the. Here's the uh, here's the interesting thing, though, going back for a second to the the propaganda element of it. There's a little bit of an element to and I'm playing devil's advocate a little bit here because I like Top Gun. I'm not I'm not I'm not trying to be like a dick and try yeah, to say I'm too good for Top Gun. No, of course. But there's a little bit of Top Gun where it's not unlike, say, something like The Triumph of the Will. Yeah, where it's a propaganda it is very, film. It's it is essentially in many ways a propaganda film for the American military because Oof, the plot of yeah. it is so loose and almost there as a way of hanging all of these aerial combat stuff together. And I think actually the thing that you can say about it is because Tony Scott is such a great aesthetic artist in so many ways, it lends a lot of dumb scenes with a lot of aesthetic beauty that kind Mm -hmm. of make them interesting in and of themselves in a way that they wouldn't be if you had a lesser filmmaker doing them. Like if you just had a sort of by the numbers filmmaker doing this, I don't think this film would have the same longevity that it's had. Part of the longevity also comes from the fact that people love the weird aesthetic of the sort of gay undercurrent of it. Things like Mm -hmm. the volleyball scene, things like the weird sex scene with the blue light. If this was just like a traditional hack Hollywood filmmaker, none of that would exist. And you would just Mm -hmm. have a film that people kind of remembered a bit for like planes, but I don't think would have the same kind of aesthetic impact because Top Gun is such a singularly weird over the top kind of experience that it's there's not another movie really like Top Gun. Mm. And 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 this is kind of where it comes into sort of auteur theory. Because as we said before, auteur theory is an authorial stamp. It's actually nothing to do with whether the film is good or the filmmaker is good. And that is Top, Top Gun is so much a Tony Scott film mm. that it 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 is what has given that film something the, the sort of impact that it's had because it has mm. this singularly strange aesthetic to it. Yeah, I guess that was the question that I was ultimately going to get to coming from that is do you think another person could have made a film even maybe within the same vicinity, like a 90% of of the power that Top Gun carries? Well, it's, it's interesting because there's two things to say on this. One, it's interesting to compare it to say a movie we watched previously on this podcast, G.I. Jane, yep. where G.I. Jane feels like it's in some ways – in the same league as something like Top Gun, but it's it's Ridley Scott. I think has a different set of priorities when he's making a film than Tony Scott does. And G.I.J. as much as it's got a lot of interesting aesthetic elements to it, it still has the female about uh, fe- yeah. women's position in the military and you know female uh, equality and empowerment, which I don't think Top Gun has any of that. Like Top Gun. <laughs> Top Gun really, I don't think, is that concerned with its storyline. I don't think it actually cares that much about Maverick as a character. I think Top Gun, I think Maverick is there to service the aesthetic of the film, not Hmm. to be something that the film, not not a story that this film is trying to tell. So it's like we need an excuse for him Hmm. to get from point A to point B to service these aesthetic elements rather than actually like G.I. Jane, where the aesthetic elements come in as a way of trying to underpin the story 
Exactly. But yeah. the interesting thing I thought about while watching it this time was comparing it to, say, Days of Thunder. Now, Days of mm. Thunder, to me, and it really became clear on this viewing of Top Gun, is how much Days of Thunder is essentially trying to redo Top Gun, but with cars. Mm. Like, it is a film that is so based on the aesthetic coolness and um, cold trickle is so much a kind of maverick type character where he is almost bereft of any real character traits beyond the sort of star wattage of Tom Cruise and this kind of very slight romance story between him and Nicole Kidman. Um, And there's just not, there's not much to it. Mm. And the thing with Top Gun is it is relying on this incredible bravado thing, which is, aircraft carriers fucking jet fighters you know it's it's <laughs> it's big but nascar because it's cars that drive in a circle it doesn't have that same sort of aesthetic element that can quite hit the level of top gun which i think mm. is and i like days of thunder don't get me wrong me too me but too. it is it cannot match the aesthetic elements that top gun has and so it's yeah. it's interesting to see how Essentially trying to redo Top Gun in a different setting doesn't really work, hmm. even if you have the same creative team behind it. Yeah. No, yeah, that, that totally makes sense. And I, I think part of it has to do just kind of essentially with the scale that you're working at. You yeah. know, you're working with fucking sky, you know, and the scale of sky and the scale of uh, technologies, like you said, aircraft carriers and fucking fighter jets. So... There is something amazing about that that does really stimulate and it, it appeals that sort of that that masculine, uh, you know, like what did what did Tim Allen used to do the, uh, uh, you know, like the, the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like that thing, like power it's, tools. It's interesting too, though, because I kind of think like you see Tom Cruise in this, and this is almost what Tom Cruise has been essentially trying to recapture for the last ten or fifteen years of his career. Because in the '90s, Tom Cruise kind of went through this thing of like. I want to be taken seriously. I want to work with serious directors. He goes and does things like Interview with a Vampire. He sees Boogie Nights and is like, that movie's fucking amazing. Calls up Paul Thomas Anderson. He's like, whatever you want, I'll just be in it. Like, just whatever you want to do, I want to be in it. Um, yeah. Works you know, with Spielberg he, he, a couple of times. He spends like two years of his life working with Stanley Kubrick. Like, he just yeah. has this point in his career where he's like, I want to be a serious actor and I want to do serious projects. I want to work with serious directors. And it seems like at a certain point... And I think this kind of comes in hand in hand with him, his position in Scientology being really pushed up, is Mm. that it all becomes about the movie star, Tom Cruise. And so it's essentially like he spent, since about the mid-2000s, since around the time that he started sort of like the whole thing with Katie Holmes and the jumping on the couch thing, Mm. I feel like it's been very much about trying to recapture this aesthetic of Maverick, Top Gun, that kind of thing. Mm. And I and I and I and I think it's interesting because I I actually think Tom Cruise is a pretty good actor, and I think it's a shame that he seems so mired in this thing of trying to sort of prove that he's still a movie star when I think he could be off doing more interesting things. But it, it's it's interesting okay. to look at this cast as well. So Kelly McGillis, this kind of became outside of this outside of probably Witness, which is the other thing that people kind of know her for. This is by far her most famous role. Um, you know, you got Val Kilmer, who again, you Val oh. Kilmer lover, but Val Kilmer will always kind of be Iceman. Like he yeah. did, he's done a lot of other things, but Iceman is, I'm sure, the thing he gets talked that, that people talk to him the most about. For me, I I'm sure it is, but for me, he's both Iceman and Mad Mardigan from Willow. That's yeah, but Willow is more of a niche thing, man. It's like yeah. it's like, but 
I mean, and, and don't get me wrong. I fucking love Top Secret. Like, Top Secret is probably my favorite <laughs> Val Kilmer role. But, um, but you know, I mean, it's like, and this is a dude who's played Batman, but he's still like, Iceman will probably be the thing that he's most remembered for. <laughs> he also played The Saint, and nobody remembers that, and I yeah. fucking love that. I, I love that movie. Nobody loves The Saint. You're the only one who loves I The do. Saint. I you just got, love got, Val Kilmer. He can I, do I anything. Will say, I still say and, Colin, and Elizabeth Shue. Oh. I will say Anthony Edwards is probably more, will probably be more remembered for Dr. Green on ER than, um, yeah, than, unfortunately, yeah. and not, and not to me though. To he's, me, he's when great. He, he's great. He's, he is. I, he's he's, he's really goods. very much. He's the heart. He's the heart of this film in a lot yes. of ways. Like he's he's the earnest, non-posturing, lovely comic relief dude. And that's why. And you know. And I think that's uh, says a lot about Anthony Edwards as well. That I think he invests mm. the film with that pathos that means that when he dies, you are genuinely really fucking upset about it. Oh, dude, it's still and then, my heart. And then and. And you've got so you got Michael Ironside who's being Michael Ironside, and to be honest, I feel like this film could do with more Michael Ironside. It's, like, <laughs> it's disappointing how little he's actually in this movie. Yeah. Uh, Tom Skerritt rocking that oh, Tom Skerritt mustache. I love me some Tom Skerritt, and I love the fact that you get this old dude Tom Skerritt whose call sign is Viper, who when he gets up in the sky, that like strikes fear into the hearts of all the flyboys. Well, well, I love know? I love the fact too that he's like kind of like and, you know again it's got so many fucking cheesy lines with that bit too where he goes like he goes like and if no Nobody will fly with you. Give me a call. I'll fly. I'll with fly you. with you. Oh God! Hey, I, I just got chills when you said that, bro. Come oh, on. oh, sorry. sorry. I know who we've, we haven't mentioned. What about Meg Ryan? Oh yeah, and Meg Ryan. Oh, I mentioned her earlier that yeah. she comes in. Yeah, but uh, yeah, and uh, she looks super tan. Super she looks tan. very, very tan. She very looks tan. Can I say too? Like I, I actually, I have a real soft spot for Meg Ryan because I love, I, I, I really love her as a romantic comedy lead. Like I love like French Kiss and. You know, when Harry met Sally and you know, Sleepless, Sleepless in Seattle, Seattle all that yeah, stuff. Like, I, I love her as a romantic comedy lead. Was I it think in the she's kind of bad in this movie, if I'm being honest. Because, like, bad? That, that whole speech where she's talking to Kelly McGillis, she's like, I want to warn you off him, but I love him so yeah. much. She looks like she's trying to remember her lines. Like, she looks really super weird and awkward. And, and it's like, <laughs> it's kind of fine. Like, when she's like kind of being like super like hyper, she's kind of fun. Like, so when she's like, hey, goose, you big stud. Take, Take me to bed, bed or lose, lose me forever, me forever, you know. But I think it's really weird. Like the whole part where she's talking to Kelly McGillis, she looks like she's trying to remember her lines. It, it, yeah, maybe maybe she was a little loaded up. Who knows? Maybe. Um, I do think I, I think that she does a you know a nice job personally. I like her. I mean, that kind of started my my crush on Meg Ryan. Was from hey this hey, film. you know, I'm never going to complain about like having to look at Meg Ryan on screen. But, yeah, no, uh, she's know, she's a little cutie. Yeah, but but no, it's it's so I think I think we could wrap up Top Gun here. But yeah. I mean, it's like it is a film that kind of defies criticism in a lot of ways, because <laughs> on so many levels, it's not a good film, but right. it's kind of fascinating. I mean, it's it's actually it was uh, selected for preservation by the National Film Registry in 2015 as a culturally, oh. historically um, or aesthetically significant film and i think that's it's the aesthetic element mm. of it which i think is what is the really important thing because you can't say that this film didn't have a huge impact on the culture absolutely and, uh, and, also, and, and for generations to come too i mean people who watch top gun now you know kind of can become obsessed with it. like obviously ironic hipsters love top gun but people who watch it now like young yeah. kids can enjoy top gun in a way that you know a lot of movies they don't have that staying power like labyrinth a lot of times people look at the special effects or the practical effects and they're like oh it's kind of cheesy I mean, but um but top is gun, a top, is, kinda, a top gross, is a top grossing film of 
1986. It was mm-hmm. a huge success. Um, you know, they are planning on making a sequel that's supposed to come out in the next couple of years. Yeah. Um, which sounds awful. Yeah. Um, and, but here's here's the funny thing about it too. Do you know Do you know why they never made a sequel to Top Gun? Uh, well, I I heard that they wanted to. I, I watched that video that you sent yeah. me, right? And they wanted to, but they wanted to just use existing footage that they had yeah, already they shot. Yeah, they didn't want to because... spend the money to then do more aerial combat scenes. They were yeah. kind of hoping there'd be stuff left over, but and there wasn't. was literally nothing left over. So they were kind of like, <laughs> "Fuck, we don't want to spend the money to like do all of those fucking aerial combat sequences." So that means again. that Top Gun, the sequel, whatever they call it, is going to be mostly CGI. I would imagine, well, right? Yeah. I, don't, I don't imagine the military. Well, plus the military doesn't do dogfighting anymore. Well, it's it, well, exactly. It doesn't really. I mean, even. When Top Gun came out, it was kind of pretty much over by that point as well. I mean, it's like yeah. it's why they have to have this really, really shoehorned in uh, nonsensical dogfight at the end that doesn't really make much sense. Can can I also just say quickly? I don't get why the big achievement. I, I the whole notion of Top Gun confuses me a little bit. Okay, so you have these guys who are already Navy pilots mm-hmm. who then go to a school to just become better navy pilots yes and then trainings and then the best and then the top prize gets to come back to the school to be an instructor like but that doesn't make any fucking sense to me why would you want to like if if you like get to be like the pinnacle of your career why would you then just want to go back and teach at the school well because in the military you become a higher rank so they probably uh would get to have a, a cushier desk job rather than being uh, but someone if who's they're the, the best of, of the best why why wouldn't they want to go be the best of the best at their job why, why would they want to just come back and be a teacher well you have the option of coming back so I think the option is always open right so that you see them go and I'm tr- I don't know why I'm justifying this but you uh, so you see them go on to the aircraft carrier at the end after they've graduated top gun so they are able to go out into yeah, but the he's field. back at the same aircraft carrier was at the beginning. Right, I can't so see what's different about what he was doing at the end that he was doing at the beginning of the film. He's gone through all of the training courses and stuff like that. So it's like getting a master's degree. He basically comes back now with his, his with his master's degree. And he's it, and he's gone no further. It's like he's literally back <laughs> to where he started. You don't you don't get it, man. I don't. <laughs> From the thrilling pages of life rides a man you must fear and respect. A man whose unconquerable will and boundless determination carved a lusty, rough, and boisterous slice of history called The Searchers. It's John Wayne as Ethan Edwards who had a rare kind of courage. The courage that simply keeps on and on, far beyond all reasonable endurance, never thinking of himself as martyred, never thinking of himself as brave. So we'll find him in the end, I promise you. We'll find him. Here is a story of a man, hard and relentless, tender and passionate, of people who dared to challenge a hostile land. Here is drama of great love and aching loneliness. I found him. I found Lucy. What you saw was a buck wearing Lucy's dress. I found Lucy back in the canyon. What was she? What do you want me to do? Draw you a picture? Spell it out? Don't ever ask me. As long as you live, don't ever ask me more. Okay, so The Searchers is about uh, a man called Ethan Edwards, played by John Wayne, who shows up back at his brother's 
ranch in Texas after about three years after the end of the Civil War. He fought for the Confederacy and uh, did not show up to the surrender, had kept his saber, and nobody knows where he's been for the past three years. Mm. Um, He sort of settles into staying with his brother for a bit, who has his family there together with a adopted son who is a (laughs) quarter Cherokee. Um, Now, one day when John Wayne is out with the adopted son and a bunch of local rangers, he uh, they come across a uh, a bunch of cattle that have been slaughtered by Comanches, at which point they realize that they've been drawn out essentially so that they can attack the ranch house. He comes back to find that the place has been raided and everybody has been his brother, uh, his sister in law, who it's very it's it's suggested that he's kind of in love with. Um, Hmm. Yeah, they um, they've all been killed and the youngest daughter and the older daughter have been taken, have been kidnapped by the tribe. Um, So they then set off on a journey to find the two girls. Um, And this is a journey which consumes years of their lives and becomes an obsession. And, the significant thing is Ethan Edwards is a very bitter, racist, angry man who, and this becomes far more about a journey of revenge than a rescue mission for him. Mm. At which point, uh, the uh, the uh, so adopted son, uh, played by Jeffrey Hunter, uh, named Martin, he realizes that John Wayne or Ethan Edwards is not going to try and rescue these girls anymore. He wants to kill them because he would rather they were dead than be living with the Comanche who he hates. Um, Mm. And this is a kind of a very revolutionary film. You know, it deals a lot with uh, genocide of Native Americans, the the difficult um, understanding between frontier, uh, the frontier coming in and uh, the cultures that already existed there. Uh, it's brutal, it's dark, um, but, and it's one of the most gorgeous looking films ever and is a really, really powerful performance from John Wayne. And I mean, basically, I mean, I'll just go ahead and say what the ending is because it's, it's one of the, it's, it's an ending that makes me tear up every time I watch it. But it basically, it gets to the point where they do find her and she's been, uh, she's been basically married off to a chief called Scar. Well, they find find who, who they find the youngest daughter. Yeah, they find the youngest daughter. Sorry, the old daughter's been 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 murdered. Right. Uh, so they find the youngest daughter. She's been married off to uh, the chief Scar, and there is at this point John Wayne has at least one time tried to kill her um, with um, Martin sort of uh, sort of staying staying between them, and the film ends with her running away after they've after Scar's been killed and they've sort of raided the um the the Indian village and he uh and he can't catch up to Ethan who you think is going to shoot her and then when he is finally confronted with her you know he can't bring himself to shoot her he picks her up and says let's go home and then he brings her back to the ranch house of these people who are neighbors um, where uh, and uh, where Martin's sort of fiance lives, and he gives he gives her to them to look after. They all walk into the house, and he stands in the doorway and cannot walk in. You know because mm. he he knows that he is not a civilized man, and that he is kind of 
of another time period and that he mm. and that 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 he he is not he's not Sorry, it just it, 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 it yeah. But basically, he walks off into the wilderness at the end, and the door closes, and it's you know it's breaks my heart every time I see it. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's really it is really interesting the way that they set up the transformation. They they foreshadow it in the opening scene when he comes in from the wilderness and he comes into the house yeah. and it's, I it's, even it's texted some you of the and most I said, beautiful kind of like parallelings of two shots, like an opening yeah. shot and a closing shot there. Yeah. Well, like and, and even gorgeous. before, even before the closing yeah. shot, uh, what I, what, what I wanted, wanted, wanted to point out was the actual transformation, the switch yeah. when you think he's going to kill Debbie, but he switches It's set up in the opening mm. scene because he comes in and I even texted you and I said, man, this guy is a grump, right? Yeah, yeah. And he is, he's kind of an asshole. He makes fun of Martin for being a half breed. He calls him at one point. Keeps, and, keeps calling him blanket head. Yeah. And he seems really grumpy. And he's but, like, he's like, you're no kin to me. And kind of right. like, he's like, but, he, he mistreats him through a lot of the throughout, film. throughout the whole film. But mm-hmm. in that opening sequence, even though he's grumpy to Martin, he's even grumpy to his brother. His soft spot is always to the girls. Yeah. And he picks up Debbie at one point and he calls yeah. her by the other sister's name and she's like, That's not me, I'm Debbie. And he's like, What the fuck? You know? Um but he picks her up and the way that he picks her up is the exact same way that he picks her up at the end. Well also, I don't know if you realize this as well, but some people have read into this. Debbie is eight. He um right. Ethan hasn't been back for eight years. And he clearly has a thing for him. There's there's a lot of moments between him and um, and uh, Martha. Is it Martha? Oh, uh, yeah. so maybe that's his daughter. Yeah. So there's a lot of people who think that there might that it's possible that maybe she's actually his daughter. Interesting. Uh, that that would actually bolster the mm. transformation that takes place because what happens is is by him picking Debbie up in that way that he lifts her up like you would like a little child, mm. right? Two hands up over the yeah. head, kind of like the Simba, um, yeah. but he's looking at her face, right? And he picks her up and he looks at her. And then at the end when he chases her down on horseback and it's played by Natalie Wood, who's a teenager at this point, you think, oh, fuck, he's going to kill her. But he grabs her and he picks her up yeah. and he looks at her and they don't linger on it. But there's a moment of you can see it, and it actually is a really subtle, nice shift. Yeah, it's almost a recognition. He doesn't see her as a Comanche anymore. Yeah, he sees her as his kin, whether yeah. it's his daughter or whether it's his niece. He sees her as his kin, and there is that connection. And that's when he then holds her and he cradles her like a child and says, "Let's go home." And it's a really lovely parallel how he comes first full circle. That even though he was hardened, his soft his soft spot was always for the child, you know, mm-hmm. and it was always for that girl. It was always for his blood, for his kin. And that's something that actually I think is really interesting that cuts through the whole film too and is the I, importance I actually, of blood relations. And the thing too that I think as well is I think John Wayne is genuinely fantastic in this film. And he's not he's an actor that people don't think of for his acting ability. Like right. he is a he is a guy who people think of as a persona. But right. the thing that I one of the things that I think works so well about the searchers is that is playing off of the John Wayne persona. It's like mm. you you want because and this is this is getting into it for me personally is yeah. I want I grew up watching a lot of John Wayne films and like John Wayne like as what I am with Kurt Russell that was my father mm. with John Wayne only like a hundred times more intense like my dad <laughs> was obsessed with John Wayne and yeah. like so. Like, and I had seen a million John Wayne films where John Wayne is just the stoic, badass hero who just, like, 
never is sort of perturbed. Like, it was really funny. We actually were talking about this. Like, if you ever watch Rio Bravo, there's a bit where John Wayne runs. And John Wayne is not a very good runner. Like, and it makes <laughs> you realize that John Wayne didn't run a lot in films. Like, because he didn't need to. Yeah. Um, but the thing was, so you you have this idea of him as this altruistic sort of stoic, you know, sort of good guy. Mm. And so it was really unsettling to me as a child. I watched this when I was like 10 or 11 for the first time. And it was really unsettling to me, this idea that why is John Wayne being so racist? Why is John Mm. Wayne being so mean? You know, why is he being so cruel? And it's, and it's playing off of that kind of idea of the stoic masculinity and some of the inherent darkness that comes out of that, you know, and it's, and I, and I, but I, I also think the thing about it is that, the film is aware of what you think of John Wayne and it is using that to make a point about the West, about the culture of the West and the, the impending civilization and the necessity of bringing of, of, of civilizing this sort of this world. And I mean, he's, he's a Mm. bitter man. He fought for the South. He refused to give in his hand in his saber. He, he's been, he's been gone. He's basically been wandering for three years. You Mm. know, he's, He's he's a man with nothing who kind of like doesn't value who doesn't value much of anything now except for this one purpose. And it's it's you know, and I and I think it's fascinating. And I think but there's moments in it. Right. So there's a moment where, you know, when they first come across like the cows that have been slaughtered and they all like they all go to ride off to the houses and, you know, and uh, Martin Paul is like, we have to go. And um, and John Wayne's like, no, I'm that that these horses need rest and 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 feed. Um, you know, where, you know, you're going to wear out your horse, you know, we, they need, they need a moment and it sounds cruel and it sounds like he doesn't care, but he's being pragmatic because he knows that he can't reach the house. You know, he knows there's nothing he can do at that moment in time. And there's a moment where he turns around and the camera and he's, it's a private moment. No one can see him, but the camera, and you just see this. You just see that it fall on his face that he knows exactly what's happening and he knows Mm. what's going to happen. And that that fear, that hurt, that sadness just 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 comes across his face in a look. And Mm. and that's that's the pinnacle of great acting is when you can communicate exactly what a character feels with just one look. And he does that. And, And it's again, it's like what you said about how he treats the women differently from the men. Those moments where you see how he feels about his brother's sister, like he never they never say they never say a word about it. But you can Mm. see in the way that they interact with each other and the way they look at each other that something has gone on between these two. And and, and And I think that's it. I think I think this film to me doesn't work without someone of the scale and the power and the star power of someone like John Wayne, who can who can give you this this persona, but then at times also completely implode to that with just a single look. And I think it's, I think it's, I think it's beautiful and brilliant. And I think again, it's why that ending is so moving because, because it's about what he's communicated to you about the, the, the sort of the fractured soul of this human being. Yeah. It is interesting how sort of almost like what three fifths of the way through the movie, all of the sudden, it starts going into the letter correspondence between uh, what is it, Martin Paul Polly? Martin Polly, yeah. Martin Polly and uh, I can't remember what the Lori. Chick's name. 
Lori, yeah, and uh, and how it goes back and forth between the story being told through the writings of the letter, which I think actually creates a nice sense of um, it communicates the historical time because back then. First of all, receiving a letter was a big deal, but it took a long motherfucking time. Well, they for said too. To it's like received. they got like two letters, two and, letters in a year, yeah, and it was yeah, like, yeah. oh my god, yeah, it's something to get excited about. And you start to realize that at the end of it, they they went looking for this girl for five years, was it? Yeah, five years. They're gone for five fucking years, and you start to think about it. I I, uh, I was listening to a lecture the other day, and uh, the scholar was talking about how, like, in the year, uh, like. 900 or something like that the average distance a person would travel from their home was only 12 miles of radius that's the furthest you would ever go now that didn't change much up to the middle of the 1800s when this well the mid to the late 1800s when this film took place you didn't travel that much you didn't communicate on the telephone you didn't really go to to these great distances and time worked in a very different way and so the way that this letter writing gets incorporated into the telling of the overall narrative is really nice because it it gives us a perspective on the difference of scale with regards to time and location. You know, and as as John Wayne's character, as Ethan and Martin are going through all of these, like, they're like, ah, oh, then we went up to the north and we were in the snow and there's buffalo there. I'm like, fuck, is that like Wyoming or Montana? You know, you're like, wow, they're all the way in fucking Montana. How long would it have taken them to get from fucking Texas to Montana? And then they're all over the place. I mean, so it really does a nice job of communicating how extensive their journey was, and then how elongated their journey was as well. And then not only that, but literally I have not laughed out loud as hard as I did when he kicks his squaw wife down the fucking hill when she sleeps in the bed next to him. Bro, I fucking burst it out. Like, you know, you laugh a lot of times in movies. He kicked her down the hill, and I was like, oh my god. <laughs> it's one of the funniest moments that I can recall, and I think part of it has to do with that juxtaposition of how dark and how serious it was at the outset, and how how serious you know the mission is. Even though Martin might have more of a noble cause, he wants to rescue his siblings or his adopted siblings, that you also know that this is a this is a, a revenge mission, and so there is a sense of darkness. And then that levity comes in, and it fucking oh my god, it it gripped me. I laughed. It's just it's just like the um, those points too of. You're so aware the whole time that what they're essentially doing, dealing with, is people who are being, who have been kidnapped, but also raped and abused. And they know yeah. that that's what's, that's what's, that's what's happening. So the whole time that they're on this mission, they know that this girl has probably been raped, that she's probably yeah. been sort of, that she's probably been hurt. And it's, and I remember having this conversation mm. with somebody one time. And I've, you know, I've, I've, I, I, I always say The Searchers is my favorite film. Um, and partially it's because it blew my mind when I was 10 or 11, the idea of this film about this thing that I, I had sort of seen of the Western. And I, I watched very classic Westerns. So I watched good versus evil, very simple narrative Westerns. So this was the first time I ever remember watching a film that was so morally complicated and where mm. I, I ended it with this kind of feeling of, oh, my God, what did I just watch? That it yeah. was like it just it, it, it blew my mind at the time. But I remember having a conversation with somebody um, who was a very 
well-meaning leftist person. And their whole kind of feeling was, they, they sort of said, well, I don't understand why at the end, why don't they just leave her there? Because she says leave them. And that, like, she's become a Comanche now. So why, why, so it's kind of like racist to think that, oh, you know, now she has to become, she, ha- she can only be a white person. She can only, and I was like, dude, she was fucking kidnapped and raped. Like, she's, like, in an enforced wife with this guy. Like, it's like, you can say that, like, you can have your well-meaning ideas of things, but ultimately, this is still a girl who is kidnapped. That's like saying, uh, why don't they just leave her with Joseph Fritzl? Because, like, you know, yeah. And, and, I, and I think it, it's... Yeah, it would, be, it would be different if she were adopted at a young age and the situation under which she was embraced in the Comanche tribe were different. Yeah. This is and not then, Dustin and then even and Little Big Man where he's a kid right, who was exactly. found and raised by... Exactly. You know. And then even, even the sexual relationship, is, if it were uh, before the age of what we understand consent nowadays at 18, I don't have a problem with that if we're going to talk about different contexts because obviously in England, the age of consent is 16. You know, historically, women's, uh, women and men started having sex at much younger ages. When, you know, when you, people were living like 30 or 40. Eight. Okay, so she's eight when she's originally kidnapped. They're looking for her for around five years. She's still only like thirteen or fourteen. Right. So that's yeah. that's that's an issue uh, with regards to her the rush of her maturity uh, in terms of sexuality. But more than that, it's the conditions that, like you said, she was probably, and I think it's hinted at, and I think that we have to just assume that that's part of the narrative is that she was raped by Scar. So she becomes a wife, but she becomes abused. And maybe that's even why when they first find her, she's kind of maybe in a bit of a daze, and it's the idea of snap out of it. Do you know who you are? You have been manipulated. You have been brainwashed into thinking that you are something that you're not, but you need to realize what you truly are or who you truly are, which but is an interesting theme to explore. Well, it's also, and then you see the women who are, who were the sort of captives who have been just completely mentally broken. Right by the right. experience and it's it's interesting well too. And, there's, and there's an interesting comment john wayne yeah. says you know they're like oh he's like they're not white anymore they're and you see well also it just has that amazing push in where and that's the thing is john ford i mean he's a very classical filmmaker in the sense that john ford doesn't use a close-up unless it really means something like he's mm. like he doesn't he he tends to shoot sort of wides mediums um but the idea is always to punch in when something has some sort of significance and that moment where the camera just suddenly moves in very quickly to look at john wayne's face as mm. he looks with just utter disdain and hate at these women that he feels are no longer white. And it gets, Mm. again, it just adds that extra layer to his character of just how, how, you know, and it's, it's like, it means you really do believe that John Wayne could fucking kill this girl at the end. Like, because he, you know, because of how, how much bitter hatred is in his heart, you know? Mm. And it's, and again, it's why, again, it's so moving when he, when he, when he can't do it at the end, when he, when he, when he see, he realizes that she's, it's 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 about more than just this this idea that she's been tainted. And that's that's part of it as well. Is the idea the the rape underpinning of this is part of why he sees her as tainted, you know, because she's mm. not, you know, because she's not this virginal white woman who can be married off again to another white man, you know, and sort of be like, you know, she will always be in in his mind she's tainted. And I think that's mm. But I mean, this film's relation to Indians or Native Americans is actually very fascinating, I think, because I think I think it could be. And I I remember having an argument actually with a lecturer of mine who I think was, again, a very sort of well-meaning leftist person who was basically arguing that the film was still racist. And it's hard at times to argue with your lecturer because you're essentially paying them to teach you. So it's hard (laughs) to argue with them. But 
my assessment of it is okay one you have to contextualize this film within the time period it came out which is 1956 which is like you are still like 10 years off things like little big man soldier blue a lot of westerns that then go in and re uh and sort of start to relook at the whole um way native americans were treated and portrayed right this film is very revolutionary in its time because one of the things that i think you can always take note of is john ford makes a specific effort to always give Okay, one, you have some incredibly horrific behavior. You have the main character is Ethan Edwards, who is a angry, bitter, racist human being. I mean, he's very much representative of America's past and what will and, you know, and and that's why he can't go into the house at the end, because he's not part of the future. He's not part of progress. Mm. You know, he has to die out for America to become a better place. Oh, um, and there's a great line. There's a great line um, that the the house. Who is yeah. the where, where she's talking about how we're Texicans, yeah. and she says something like, "Our bones are going to have to go into the ground yeah. before America can progress." Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's beautiful. I thought that was beautiful. And you got to remember like, these people. These were people who would have been alive when Texas when Texas was part of Mexico when it became an independent country. You know, before it became America. These are people who have seen Texas evolve into a state and be part of the United States. Right. So, but anyway, point is. That at all times he gives he goes out of his way to give some meaning to the Native Americans. So Scar he gives Scar reasoning. Scar says, I had two sons who were killed by the white man, and now I will take as many white men as I can. So in any way so in many ways there's a mirror image of the evils of John Wayne in Scar as well. They're both men who have lost something and are out for revenge, you know? And you see like the way that John Wayne does things like how he, he tries to shoot all the Buffalo because, you know, he, every Buffalo he kills, he sees as one that can't feed the, the, the Indians, you know, he shoots out the eyes of the dead body because he knows that in their culture, that means that he won't be able to walk in the spirit world. You know, it's like the, the level of hate in this man is something really, really quite profound. But, and I think that's the interesting thing, is Scar has the exact same reasoning as, as Ethan Edwards. So in, a, in many ways, John Ford is saying these, you know, how is John Wayne any better than Scar? These are, mm. these are two evil men of different, of different colors and different, but, but of the same kind of cloth. Meanwhile, too, and, when and not they all, go, when, and when not they, and not all American Indians are portrayed as these sort of violent, vengeful people. It's just this one particular Comanche tribe, right? But here's, 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 yeah, but also here's the significant thing, too. Even when he's going in, when they're raiding that tribe at the end, you can see there's a point where John Wayne knocks over a, a woman in a blanket. There's a point where you see one woman running with a child, you know, and they're not like they're not sort of. You know, there, there. The point is that when the John that John Ford makes a specific effort to visually show that there are families here, there are children here, there are women here. That these are this is not, and you know, the fact that they kind of say, "Well, we can't help who gets killed." You see, the whole point where the cavalry's come through, they killed Look, um, who's the the squaw, um, and again they. He makes a point to show the atrocities of what happened to regular people, not just not just the idea of these faceless warriors. And I think it's very simplistic mm-hmm. to try and read this film as a pure indictment of, you know, sort of the uh, of Indians being evil, white men being good, because that is not what this film is at all. You know? Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I do think obviously in the year 2017, where we are trying to be more 
Uh, we're trying to listen more to the voices of the oppressed. We would say, yeah, sure, there are issues of representation in some ways, but I mean, let's Scar get that is out. played by a white guy in in, in yeah. red face, you know. It's yeah, like, it's, but it's, let's get that out of the way. We yeah. recognize that there are some problems, yeah. but at the same time, in its context, like you say, in 1956, there are some interesting things, and I do think that there is something more, let's say, more basic to humanity. That, that almost subverts and not transcends because I think it undergirds um, and, and, it, and it cuts through the various identities. doesn't matter if you are a Confederate soldier or if you are a Comanche uh, warrior or whatever you would call uh, Scar. Um, the idea is, is that vengeance and violence can consume you and yeah. it can lead to this path where that, that is what your life becomes. You become just a vengeful body. And that that's disgusting in some ways, regardless of who you are. Now, of course, the story is told from the perspective of the white man, but that doesn't mean that there isn't also an indictment of John Wayne's character. John Wayne is a flawed hero. He's not in any way this guy that John Ford is saying, hey, we should all emulate this guy. He's really documenting, like you even said, this idea of this shift between the old world uh, that is being passed by, and then the civility of the new world that John Wayne helped to forge. And this actually goes to, obviously, the book about, you know, uh, Six Guns and Westerns, um, uh, that, that uh, or what, Six Guns and Society, Six I'm Guns sorry. Six Guns and Society, yeah. Yeah, Six Guns and Society that, uh, that you recommended that I check out uh, a while back. And um, it does, it, it kind of sheds light on how important the man of the wilderness and how important violence is in forging of civilization itself but nevertheless that the man of violence can't partake of it because even though it was useful it wasn't good to, well, to perpetuate or to maintain well and i think the interesting thing too is that i think it's very telling that essentially the future and civilization and progress is represented by a guy who is quarter cherokee um who yeah. is or, you know who's referred to obviously as a half breed yeah. um and the idea is that and he is very much the heart and goodness of this film. He's the good guy. He's, right? he's the yeah. hero, ostensibly. And yeah. even it's like that moment where even he sees that someone as, you know, seemingly mild and uh, likable as um, Laurie uh, would say, you know, would, bas would basically say to him, you know, she's not white anymore and that Ethan will put a bullet in her brain and that's mm. probably what Martha would have wanted. You know, it's mm. like, you know, and obviously she's in a moment where she's upset because she doesn't want him to go again. But at the same time, it's like he is the only person who really sees the significance, importance of why it's important to bring her back and why it's important to protect mm. her from Ethan. Yeah, he kind of transcends those identity barriers that culture had erected at that point mm -hmm. because he literally in his own blood uh, is 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 mixed he also kind of represents the sort of overcoming of these simple binary categories of us versus them. And, um, yeah, and there is something beautiful about the fact that his ideas are the ethical ideas that are espoused as the good moral ideas as opposed to what everyone else is kind of trying to pursue. Well, it's, it's also quite interesting, too, hmm. I think, how he essentially – he also represents the idea of – the family that is created rather than simply biologically 
there. Like, and yeah. I, I, I have a real soft spot for, I, mean, I think partially it's like I, I grew up with a mother who's a, you know, was a social worker for most of my life. So uh, I think I have a real soft spot for anything that's about how family is what we make rather than just simply what we're biologically, um, mm. we're, we're biologically given. And so I think the idea that Jeffrey Hunter as much as he's, you know, there's this constant dynamic of John Wayne going, she's not your kin. She's my kin. Yeah, you're not, yeah. you're, I'm not your uncle. And so even like this moment where, where John Wayne reads him his will and says, okay, I'm going to leave everything to you. And cause you know, cause I got no kin anymore. And it's almost, mm. it's the closest that he's ever come to basically accepting Jeffrey Wright as, you know, a nephew or, you know, some kind of actual family. And, but it's, it's hollow to Jeffrey, to Jeffrey Hunter because he can't accept it because of the fact that this means that John Wayne is essentially rejecting, um, is, is, is rejecting Debbie as, as his kin anymore. And, you know, and, and because she's, because she's been contaminated, because she's been contaminated. And I think again, it's, it's that moment of, you know, what does family mean? What does family represent? What is, you know, and, 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 and I just think there's, that's, that's the point is at the end, Ethan Edwards realizes that, you know, Jeffrey Hunter, like, so Martin Pauly and Debbie, they are family. Um, he's going to go off, marry, uh, marry Lori. They're going to form a new family. And he's no part of that. That is, he's the real outlier. He's the one who's not, who, who, who doesn't, who, who can't be there anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, thematically, it is really interesting in the way that it explores all of these various themes. And um, it's so interesting because it's not just a Western in the sense that, uh, all right, we got some good guys and some bad guys, and it's a shoot 'em up, and, you know, they're going to go and save the day. It's, uh, it's got themes that are so rich mm-hmm. that I feel like. I mean, and, I, and you'd have to tell me if there is literature out there, but I feel like you could literally write books and books and books on the themes just from this film itself and how it relates to Westerns, how it relates to the reflecting of the American myth, because the world that it presents is also a very simple one. You know, mm-hmm. everyone has a religious belief. Um, there's a certain moral code. Women are women and men are men. You know, there's that bit where the two guys are fighting at the end and then John Wayne, even jokingly, he kind of pushes the woman back in. He's like, hey, remember, you're a lady. I, and- I also, I kind of love how they're, it's like the most unmanly fight ever. Like oh, dude, the two of them do not. Yeah. It's not like, it's not like John <laughs> Wayne in The Quiet Man where he's just like, they're just like slugging the shit out of each other. Like, yeah. it's like they literally, they're, they're like, they're play, basically almost playing grab ass with each other. They are they're playing doing, grab you know? ass. Yeah. And that's why everyone kind of sits around and laughs. But, yeah. but it is a very simple world you know the there's the bit where um lori kind of confesses that she's been in love with this guy since they were three and and he's like you want to go steady and she's like we've been going steady since we were three years old you know and there's this simple like they never even kissed but you just know that that's the person i'm gonna be with and when they do kiss that's like a big fucking moment when they kissed i was like oh shit and then they start kissing i was like oh my god that's like they just banged you know (laughs) i mean that's kind of like the equivalent the cultural equivalent so there there is a very simplistic and um, I, I guess we would use the word traditional, but a very older notion of what it meant to be an American. And this film reflects that. And then at the same time, it also subverts it. And it talks about some of the other problems with that simple American myth that is portrayed. And and it really has a lot of depth, I think, in, in the film. And then beyond that, I just wanted to say before we get bogged down in the thematics – you mentioned it a couple of times, and I want to talk to you about this. This is probably the most beautiful Western 
that I have seen in a long time, maybe ever. It is gorgeous. It is absolutely gorgeous. Um, so, I mean, if you could talk about kind of the technicality of it for a minute. Well, I've, that I've, would, been, I've been to awesome. Monument Valley, which is in Arizona, which is okay. the um, this sort of, I think it's close to Utah. I can't remember. But it's, um, I'm pretty sure... It's either a national park or a, reser- or a, or a reservation. I can't remember okay. now. Um, but it's I've been there, and it is amazing. It's an, it's just one of those just visually just incredible sites. And, um, you know, it was one of John Ford's favorite filming locations. Um, and, of course, they're technically in Texas, like, uh, according to the story. Right. But they actually filmed pretty much the whole film in Arizona and Utah. Um, okay. And the bits with the snow they filmed in Alberta. And then there's okay. there's a few bits that admittedly are very clearly sound stages. Um, you know that, but I, I think the, I, I, I think the thing with it is you got to remember at this time period, they're terrified of the invention of television. So part of what they're trying to do with say something like the searchers is they're really trying to sell the idea of the cinema experience. So that's why a lot, you know, it's filmed in CinemaScope. The idea is that they want to just show these giant vistas off. They want to show the and so scale what, what is, and wonder. What is, what is CinemaScope? What does that mean exactly? Uh, it's just very, very wide. Uh, so know, it's like 65 millimeter or something like that. Well, it's, it's more the frame. It's a very wide frame. Oh, okay. Um, okay. So it's uh, basically because the idea was TV was four by three at that time. So you wanted something that was like really, really wide to show off the, the scale of what you could do with cinema gotcha. and sort of really show off landscape. And it's interesting because David Lean cites The Searchers as his biggest influence for doing Lawrence of Arabia in terms of mm. apparently watched it a lot to try and get uh, to try and inspire him. In, and, and work out how to shoot sort of these big, um, big vista shots. And he, and at all time, John Ford has a really great grasp of scale. Like he understands how to make a shot look big and enormous. And it's, it's interesting too how much, you know, you really, the, the film really plays off with the sense of the landscape, but also doesn't really lose a sense of the characters at the same time, you know? Mm. Um, and I think, and I think there's a, it's a beautiful simplicity to John Ford as a filmmaker. He knows mm. how to make things look big and grand and epic, but he also knows how to not fuss around too much with things. And that was kind of his character. There's a really famous bit where Peter Bogdanovich did an interview with John Ford in uh, 1969, and he I can't remember which film he's asking about, but he's asking him about some sequence, and he kind of goes like, how did you film that? And John Ford just looks at him and goes, with a camera. You know? <laughs> and, I mean, John, yeah. The, the famous quote about of John Ford was uh, John Ford uh, giving an acceptance speech where he said, uh, my name is John Ford and I make Westerns, you know, and it's like, <laughs> you know, he was he was a man who was very much about no fuss um, mm-hmm. and he just kind of and, and but there's a bu- brilliant artistry in his simplicity. What's it's interesting, too, that you were talking about um how you could you could write entire books on it and stuff like that. I mean, I, I, I'm, yeah. I'm just throwing this out there. This is not a niche film that I've picked here. This is not like something where like I've discovered it and nobody else has like watched this film. Like this is, you know, in 2012, Sight and Sound, uh, when they did their 10 year poll on the greatest film of all time, uh, they was listed as number seven as of the greatest films of all time. Uh, Caillou de Cinema listed as one of its 10 as one of the 10 greatest films of all time. Um, the American film Institute ranks it in 12th place of the greatest American films of all time. You know, it's like, it is a, 
it, it's it's uh the AFI also listed as the greatest western ever made. It is a yeah. it is a film that is incredibly influential and pretty much everybody cites. And I mean was I mean and I've I've said before, you know, like you know, people like Kurosawa were huge fans of John Ford, you know, so like when Kurosawa is making mm. The Seven Samurai, he wants to make a John Ford Western. I mean, mm. he is a filmmaker, which you have to put up there as one of the greatest American filmmakers of all time. And he was a guy who, again, was fascinating in the sense that he was really gung ho as part of the American war effort in World War II, uh, was really galvanized the this sort of documentary filmmaking element in was World he War one II. of the five he was one of the five back? yeah he was yeah. yeah he was kind of one of the he was pretty much the the sort of the galvanizing force behind it and mm-hmm. I mean people said that he went to he he was there at uh, at Normandy you know shot footage there and kind of was never the same afterwards people said you know he kind of went home after that and never really sort of like was never really the same but it's interesting because you then think about you know 10 years later he's making this film that's about sort of the idea of good and evil being this dark ambiguous gray and you know the evils of you know racism and you know sort of the, the destruction and genocide you know of you know, in America. And I wanted to read a quote from, from you here, because in a 1964 yeah. interview in Cosmopolitan magazine, Ford said, there's some merit to the charge that the Indian hasn't been portrayed accurately or fairly in the Western. But again, this charge has been a broad generalization and often unfair. The Indian didn't welcome the white man and he wasn't diplomatic. If he has been treated unfairly by whites in films, that unfortunately was very often the case in real life. There was much racial prejudice in the West. And the thing is, you could sit there and you could kind of say, oh, he's not coming out and being like, well, the American Indians, everything was unfair and it was a genocide. But for a man his age, because he would have been in his 70s, I think, at that point, you know, coming from his time and having made the Western, that is a pretty big statement to make to say yeah. that, you know, and, and I think you can see that in in his in what he does here. He's not interested in painting a picture of. Uh, the and I think this is where pe- some people still find the film uncomfortable. He's not interested in painting the Indians as pure victims, but he's also not interested in painting the white man as heroes. And I mean, to suggest that there's no like that everything was perfect in America before the white man came along, and that all that no, there were no warring Native American tribes, and that like there was an amount of you know. Uh, murder and genocide that went on between tribes is also incredibly naive. Now, does that mean I'm saying that there's any validity to the white man coming and taking over the land? No, not not whatsoever. But we also can't get into a picture perfect idea of what, you know, what the world was before that. And I think right. that's the interesting thing is that John Ford is very interested in the grays of all of this. He's interested in seeing and I think there's something really interesting the idea by creating these parallels between Scar and Ethan, what he's sort of saying is that this hate, this evil, this cruelty, it transcends race. It transcends, um, kind of culture and that all of, and, and, and it's, 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 it's a dark world, you know, outside of civilization. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think we need to hold the tension, right? That, mm-hmm. that you can say that violence has always existed. And just because a new violence comes in and squashes the previous, uh, like domain of violence that doesn't mean that um 
they sort of cancel each other out and that one was good and one was bad. It's, it could all be understood as bad in certain circumstances, but one is just extra bad. And now that's a very pessimistic sort of like misanthropic view of the world that it's just all violence everywhere and it's just violence on top of violence. But my point isn't to kind of make that statement absolutely, but it is to recognize that, like you said, that it's okay to recognize that Indian genocide uh, is a bad thing. Yeah. And at the same time to also recognize that that the conflicts among American Indians themselves, even within their communities, is something that also ought to be criticized, you know? And and there are individuals that need to take that perspective. We need to recognize that. But that doesn't justify uh, Indian genocide well, at all. Well, this is the nuance. Is and people horrible. want black and white. They want it to right. be very, these people are good, these people are bad. And if you just simply reverse it, it doesn't work. And I, and I think... I mean, don't go, don't get yeah, me wrong. I mean, I, I love, these people are bad, and these people are worse. That's I okay. love, I love, like one of my favorite westerns of all time is Little Big Man, starring Dustin Hoffman, which is very much about trying to correct the idea of representation of um, of Indians on screen. And I think one of the great things it does is it has it it it, it seeks to try and it seeks to puncture a lot of the. Uh, famous faces of the West, like Custer or Wild Bill Hickok, while also making the uh, the Indians much more fleshed out and complicated characters. But that is not what this movie is. Like, right. Little Big Man is trying to do something completely different. But this is kind of trying to still tell a grand operatic story in the in the within the remit of the western and i think that's mm. and i think that's it it's like you have to respect a movie for what it is rather than try and criticize it for trying to for not being something that we would prefer 50 years down the line or something or, like or maybe both yeah. maybe you can still criticize it and recognize that in the 1950s we had a naive and perhaps limited framework by which we were able to interpret and then represent certain cultures and at the same time also recognize um, the strengths of what it did do in its context. So I think we can still be critical and simultaneous. It's like with Top Gun. We can criticize it for being a fucking propaganda film and at the same time also recognize that there are certain things that are interesting about it, right? But it's, it's interesting. And I think we need to do that with everything. We need to always have that both and dialectical mindset. Well, and it's also like I don't like things. Like, for instance, I watched this thing that was uh... – Screen Junkies list of the seven greatest westerns of all time, and they they listed The Searchers in as number three, which I think is ridiculous. But um, and listed it behind Unforgiven, which if you want to talk about a fucking overrated movie, Un Unforgiven is really <laughs> fucking overrated. But um, but anyway, uh, so but their whole thing through it was kind of this. I thought kind of slightly stupid kind of apologizing thing going like, hey, it's got great vistas. And obviously it has a lot of problematic elements in terms of its portrayal of Native Americans. I'm just like, fuck you. You haven't engaged with the film at all. You've just mm -hmm. simply said you've not you've created a you've you've created a film that has some negative Native Americans in it. So therefore it's bad. And I'm like, you haven't fucking engaged with the film. You haven't engaged with the main character is the fucking is ostensibly the villain of the piece. He is the evil racist white man and you've not bothered to try and engage with that you've just simply said this is a movie where john wayne kills some indians fuck you for not even bothering to try and engage with the deep thematic relevant beautiful elements of this movie it's like you you yeah. don't fucking deserve this movie that's that's what <laughs> that's what i felt movie. fuck you call it unfucking forgiven oh 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 my oh i'm clint eastwood and i'm an old man now and now i'm engaging with the old way with with, with how what being what the west was like. oh fuck you i don't care what was number one? 
Uh, number one was the good, the bad, and the ugly, which is yeah, I, I thought yeah. My problem again with that is that it's very much this. I mean, the list was bullshit anyway because they put the hateful eight on there, and the hateful eight's not even a good Tarantino movie. So I'm not like it's it's like it's like probably Tarantino's <laughs> worst movie. So yeah, I'm but like, it's Kurt Russell with a, just a glorious mustache. And, and I will say, if you want to talk, I mean, it's not even Quentin Tarantino's best western because to me, if you want to actually, and I think they wouldn't put Django on there because they were like worried that oh, it's a movie that says the n word a lot and it's about slavery. But if you want to talk about a film that's actually actually interesting in the way yeah. that it dissects the Western Django and chained is a really fascinating film for that reason. Yeah. But hateful eight is just dull. But anyway, point is point is that I also don't like this thing of kind of coming in and giving lists of Westerns is very much close 21st century based where it's all kind of revisionist Westerns. Um, and that doesn't engage with the actual classical Western because, you know, there's a lot of amazing films, you know, Rio Bravo, you know, uh, Red River, you know, there's a million fucking brilliant Westerns out there. She wore a yellow ribbon and, and, and you, and it's, but it's, it's so easy to just go, Oh, well, we, we like the Clint Eastwood Westerns or we like the, uh, we like the more modernist revision. It's got, of course, like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance kid was on there and, you know, the wild bunch. And I like these movies. Don't get me wrong. Those are good movies. But these, those movies exist because of a huge wave of incredible movies that were made that were that were that were being made for 40 years before those movies ever existed so to yeah, me the, part of the problem is though is that we have lost the innocence that would allow us now as young people i would imagine that the writers of screen junkie are probably under the age of 35 or at least under the age of 40 most likely right and because of that their sensitivity and their sensibility is going to make it that they've lost the innocence that would allow them to be able to experience the classical Western um, unless they were self-critical and self-referential, in, in which is what I think you're trying to do and I hope what I, what I was trying to do too. And so because of that, they, they can only experience the criticism of the Western through the revisionist Western as being the sort of pinnacle of where Westerns have come. But to me, right? it's, like, but to me it's like if you made a – if you made a, a a film about if you if you did a list of the greatest noir films and then didn't have only had one film from uh, before 1956, I mean that would be like I mean right. because basically everything after 1956 starts to become neo noir. So it's like so it's like you you entirely miss what the main body of the actual thing was and only go to things that were actually just critiquing that or spinning that. It's like you can't have a lot of these westerns without the without the ones that already existed because most of them are just playing off ideas that already exist. So even if you do say something like, uh, you know, uh, Once Upon a Time in the West, that film is playing off the history and tradition of the Western that was established for 40 years beforehand. I mean, I, let me put it on this basic level. How the fuck can you create a list of the seven greatest Westerns of all time where you put fucking The Hateful Eight on it and you don't have fucking <laughs> Shane? Fucking yeah. Shane, man. <laughs> I mean, right. that is like, I'm just like, I can't take you seriously as a human being if you think The Hateful Eight is a better Western but, than but again, Shane. But again, I think that has to do with this loss of innocence that a lot of more contemporary persons aren't able 
to then recapture. They aren't able to entertain even. You know, I think you can watch a film like Shane where it's simple, white hat, black hat. You know, you can watch a film like Searchers that has maybe outdated portrayals of American Indians to an extent, but at the same time you also recognize there's a reason for it, but even even those outdated portrayals, they aren't as significant as the nuance, the grays of what Ford is exploring because you're able to kind of entertain those those differences of of intensity and feeling and things like that that I think a lot of people aren't able to do. And there's that white guilt that a lot of people carry with them and that affects them because they've lost that innocence already. And then they're like, no, everything has to be about the victim. And I agree that that's important. But nevertheless, we have to be able to do both. And people are too limited in the way that they interpret And I will say, too, the thing is, The Searchers is based off a book where the writer did a huge amount of research into the this thing that was a real phenomenon, which was white women who were kidnapped and married into Native American tribes. This is not something that didn't happen in the West. This genuinely did happen. And you can say as much as you want that, oh, yeah, well, that comes from a system where where Native Americans were pushed off their land and everything. It doesn't justify the fact that these women were kidnapped, raped, and forcibly married into things. You know, it's like we... You know, these were horrible things that did happen in this time. So it's also like we can't whitewash history and just try and make it as simple as, you know, these people are good. These people are bad. And that's not what the that's not what Searchers is. The Searchers is a film about grays and nobody is the good guy except probably for Jeffrey Hunter, you know, who is a man who is representative of the future. And that is why this film is fucking too smart for a bunch of fucking I don't want to say it, but I'm tempted to say fucking SJW assholes. I knew you were going to say it. Don't. No. Yeah. Well, I think part of the problem, too, is with that mindset is that it's already embracing the system of vengeance that, yeah. that we need to deconstruct. The film itself portrays this system of vengeance, but it doesn't do it in a positive light. It doesn't no. say, yeah, vengeance is good. It's actually kind of deconstructing. Maybe there are and saying maybe there are ways that we should found human communities that aren't on this cycle of well, vengeance. Well, it's also interesting that you is, point though, that out, though, because also think about it. The murderer's scar is not a cathartic image. When Scar is killed, it's a moment of quick self-defense. It's done in a kind of like really kind of almost because he it's basically Mm. he approaches it. Jeffrey Hunter panics, shoots him, and then it happens kind of off screen. And then later you find John Wayne. He comes in. He scalps scalps Scar. And it's a brutal, fucking cruel moment. And by that point, you are really on board with the fact that Ethan Edwards is a fucking crazy human being. And this just fucking (laughs) underlines it more. And it is not a cathartic moment. That's the thing is the notion of vengeance in this film is not portrayed as cathartic. It is it is. It is portrayed as dehumanizing and, you know, uh, morally fucked up. And that's it. Like, and and the fact that he doesn't kill her at the end, that he can see through his hate, that is the thing that's beautiful about this movie. That is why this film fucking endears for so long. Because if it was just a dumb movie about a guy who wanted to go kill a fucking, a bunch of Indians because they, they killed his family, Hmm. it would not be, it would not be seen as the seventh greatest film of all time by sight and sound. It is, it is, it is so much more than that. Or the third greatest Western by Screen Junkies, but you know, but whatever. No, um, but Fuck no, you're you Screen right. Junkies. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> you're absolutely right. The way that it portrays vengeance is, I think, it's very intelligent because uh, it tries to ki- kind of get us out of this idea that this is what justice is: is that if you engage in this cycle of vengeance, even if you get your revenge, are you good? No, because John Wayne can't come into the house. He's not redeemed 
through his pursuit of vengeance at all. As a matter of fact, he's alienated because vengeance might have been useful. Violence might have had a use value, but does it ultimately serve to benefit human progress? And the answer is no. So if we then criticize, you know, uh, people by saying, "Oh, then what we need to do is we need to recognize that you know that uh, that white people they should get they should have a, an enactment of vengeance upon them in return because of the atrocities that they've committed or because of the way that they have viewed other people." All you're doing is you're perpetuating that cycle of vengeance rather than trying to transform it into something else. Now that doesn't mean that you brush things under the rug. That doesn't mean that there aren't there isn't a need for justice. But we need to start thinking about different forms of justice, rehabilitative justice, you know, or restorative justice rather than retributive and vengeance. Well, I really enjoyed I really enjoyed the experience of watching. And you didn't like find I said, it, you didn't find it slow or anything, did you? No, there were times when it was a little bit slow. I did check the time at one point, but that was uh, it was when they were doing the kind of letter sequence, yeah. and I did want it was at that point where it slows down a little bit for me. But because I was so interested to see what ends up happening, and because of obviously the sort of stakes were so high, it kind of pushed through. But do I would some say it's interesting because it's it's, it's, it's a it's a it's a two hour movie. It's one hundred and nineteen minutes. Um, right. It feels longer than that. I always think it, does, it feels definitely. like it's like a three-hour epic, but it's actually it only two hours. And I think that's yeah. partially because of the fact that it's just like so much happens and so, so much. much happens, it's yeah. it's a very episodic movie as well. Yeah, an hour in, I was I remember I did actually think that I was like, holy fuck, man, so much has happened, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then I that was when I checked and I was like, okay, there's an hour left, and I was it's like, holy very, shit, an hour left. But I think that's also because the scenes are very economic. Like they squeeze a lot into a scene. Yeah, I mean, so, it's an yeah, excellent so movie. I, I'm 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 going out and I'm saying the um, amazingly controversial uh, statement: John Ford was a fucking great filmmaker. So. Then, yeah. <laughs> okay, so next week we are returning to something a bit more normal. We are going to we're going to be having a guest on who uh, has been on once before, um, and second time we've had a returning guest. And uh, that is Bradley, who last time he was on, uh, told us to fuck off. Well, told me to fuck off uh, <laughs> before hanging to up. Off. Told me to fuck off right before hanging up. So <laughs> uh, we'll see if he manages to stay on for a full episode this time. Um, but this time uh, we are doing a film which is all about nostalgia. We are doing The NeverEnding Story. Oh my gosh, dude. Holy shit. Okay, this is straight up taking me back to my childhood. Which is a film that I have seen once, I think, when I was a kid, and don't remember much about, aside from that flying dog thing. I weirdly think I've seen The NeverEnding Story 2 a bunch of times. I think I've seen that more than I've seen The NeverEnding Story. No, I haven't seen this movie in years, but uh, it, man, I, when I was a kid, it was definitely important to me. All so right. I'm so, excited. So uh, so that's next week. Um, in the meantime, uh, please subscribe to us on iTunes, write us reviews, uh, check out the website, I dig this movie. Um, you can come check out my work at kierseward.com. Um, Austin, I, I ask this every week, are you doing anything? Yeah, hit me up on uh, Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden. I always feel like false advertising my shit, but if you find me on Twitter, hit me up on Facebook, Austin Hayden Smith, then you'll know what I'm up to. I am doing a debate, but it's not pertaining to film, so I'm not even going to plug that unless you're interested in politics. I'm, you know, a Marxist scholar, and so I'm debating a libertarian guy on a Scottish Liberty podcast, so you can check that out. But we're not going to talk about movies. Movies are better. Movies make you happy, even though economics is fun. So let's just talk about movie stuff. I don't even know what I am. It's like, you, you, you know, I mean, like, I'm not a libertarian. I'm not a Marxist. I, I don't know. I just watch movies. <laughs> <laughs>